Hello. So, uh, wow, rough day. Boy, is it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm so uh, thrilled and honored that you would even uh, give us the time for this. Um, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but. I'm going to um, make the time for as much of this as I can. So yeah. um, uh, first, can you, can you tell me your, um, your, your relationship and roots with Ukraine? Like, yeah, what is was, Ukraine to you? I was born in Kiev. Uh, Jane Litvinenko came into the world at the same moment as her native country. That's the day uh, I was born. August 24th, oh. 1991, Ukraine's Independence Day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Wow. Today, Jane is a journalist based in Canada, where she moved as a child, but she still has family in Ukraine, including her father. And now, like all of us, she's watching a war unfold from afar. Her native country's three-decade-long pursuit of a vibrant, inclusive democracy is being bombarded and shelled and invaded and occupied by Russian military forces. Ukraine's foreign minister said a Russian missile slammed into an apartment building in the southwest part of the city early this morning. Of course, Russian leader Vladimir Putin has been waging a proxy war already, propping up separatists in the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine since 2014. And that same year, with virtually no resistance, his troops occupied Crimea, a Black Sea territory that belonged to Ukraine. The war has been a reality for eight years. And when the escalations really first started in November, there was a kind of disbelief. And that disbelief came from the fact that Putin sometimes amasses more troops on the border um, just to remind um, Ukrainians in the world that they're there. And during the holidays, there was a break. In a surreal turn of events, everybody took time off for the holidays, including Ukraine's invader. Uh, it has been kind of like watching something happen in front of your eyes and still not believing that it would happen. From the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Siva, as we just heard from Jane Litvinenko, Ukrainians may have taken a little time off over the Christmas holidays and New Year's, but they certainly have not been caught off guard by recent events. By all accounts, so far anyway, a larger and better equipped Russian army is facing fierce resistance and incredible resolve from their adversaries. Ukraine's military, along with civilians who've taken up arms, are battling in the streets of three major cities, including the capital, Kyiv. And as we record this on March 1st, it's anybody's guess how this will play out. In Kyiv, residents are preparing for street-to-street -street fighting mixing Molotov cocktails as fast as they can fill bottles. That's why we are fighting for our freedom, for ourselves, for our houses, for our children. We'll stand till the end.
so today we're going to add some context to the conflict in Ukraine. We're going to talk about the events that have led to it and its significance to the health of democracy around the world. And to do that, we've lined up a couple of segments for you from two earlier episodes about Russia and about Ukraine. But first, Siva, let's turn back to that conversation you had with Jane Litvinenko. So when was it that you spoke to her? Yeah, it was last week, the very night after Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Goodness, she must have been extremely rattled. She was. She was rattled. She was tired, but she was also hopeful. She said she was optimistic that her fellow Ukrainians would stand up to Putin, as they had when they flooded the streets of Kiev and other cities in 2013 and 2014 in the Maidan revolution. Now, back then, Ukrainian citizens threw out a Kremlin-backed president named Viktor Yanukovych. He had refused to support stronger ties between Ukraine, which is, of course, a former Soviet republic, and the European Union. We all remember the pictures of Kiev on fire, right, as protesters were in the millions fighting against Russian control of their country. And uh, people lost their lives for that cause during that revolution. And the world was with them at that time. They won. They established a beautiful democratic nation that, of course, has deep growing pains as it tries to unshackle itself from the deep tragedy of it being ruled by USSR. But it flourished into this incredible, incredible country with art um, and beautiful culture and the best food you'll ever eat and genres of music that are so inventive. It's like they're a new genre in and of itself. And that is a threat to Putin. And he knew when the revolution was won that it was going to be a threat. And that is why he annexed Crimea, right? It's really important to look at that 2014 context and at that battle for democracy because it's the same battle. It's the same motivation. Those revolutionaries are fighting for Ukraine now. And Putin is fighting those revolutionaries still. I asked Jane what she makes of Putin's long game here. Like, why would he mount such a risky military venture right now in 2022? And she pointed out that we can't forget Putin's background, where he came from, or what he's been doing as he consolidated power over the past 20 plus years, including going after opponents in his own country, like Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned with a Russian nerve agent and nearly died in 2020. You know, um, I would push back on the characterization that uh, Putin's a rational man. He's a KGB agent, and that's really important to remember. He came from the KGB, and now he runs Russia like a mafia. And a part of every mafia is violence. In the last couple of years, he has helped put out the revolution in Belarus as well as in Kazakhstan. He has uh, done everything he could to silence his critics at home by labeling uh, free press as foreign agents 
and not only free, free press, but non-government organizations as well. One particularly egregious example was uh, him labeling an organization called Memorial uh, for an agent. And the reason why it's particularly egregious is because it's an organization that was established to keep track and uncover Stalin's abuses. Um, and of course, we can't forget Navalny's poisoning as well as Salisbury and uh, various other violent attacks on protesters within the country that Russian dissidents have endured. And when we look at that all together, I think the motivation becomes very clear. Putin has said that the fall of USSR is a tragedy, has uh, mischaracterized Ukrainian history, and has said that Ukraine is not a real nation. And so when taken in all of that context, his motivation, I think, emerges loud and clear. So that leaves me wondering what you, as a Canadian who was born in Ukraine thinks about the United States and whether Ukraine can depend on continued support from the United States and from other allies. Because it seems to me like there have been many promises made over the years, and yet nobody has stood up to Putin in all of his low-level warfare that he's been engaging in. Do you have any faith that things are going to be different this time? I mean, what hopes do you have? What expectations do you have in terms of the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany doing anything to bolster the future of Ukraine? So um, let me say this. If the West had stood up for democracy along the way, mm -hmm. we would not have ended the road here. In the most elementary logistical issue that I can think of is had the West supported the Belarus protests mm. um, and the election of a legitimate president, had the West stood up against the torture of protesters in Belarus, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks that are now threatening Kiev the same troops that have now entered through Belarus to Ukraine and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And this series of failures along the way, not just in Eastern Europe, we're talking about Ukraine now because, because that's where the escalation is, but Globally, there has been a series of failures to support nascent democracies as they're fighting deeply abusive authoritarian regimes has contributed directly to this escalation and to the loss of 137 lives today. And so there is an immediate need to course correct. Yes, we need the mother of all sanctions. Yes, they should sanction Putin himself. Yes, they should provide humanitarian aid. Yes, they have a responsibility to hand out visas like candy to anybody who is Ukrainian in name. And yes, they should prop up our financial sector. And they should do this not just for Ukraine, but for all countries who are fighting for their democracy because we see very clearly that authoritarians don't have any problem fighting for authoritarianism.
Jane Litvinenko is a freelance journalist and a senior research fellow at the Technology and Social Change Project, part of Harvard University's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. She lives in Toronto. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. When we come back, the stories of a man with no face and a revolution bathed in orange. After this message from our friends. The Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California brings together top Republicans and Democrats to transcend partisan divisions and explore practical solutions to our most pressing national and global challenges. On the Bully Pulpit podcast, every exchange is guided by standards central to the Center for the Political Future's mission. Respect each other and respect the truth. Opponents are adversaries, not enemies. And if you lose, don't burn down the stadium. Subscribe to the Bully Pulpit podcast today. See, but Jane Lefinenko brought up Putin's hardball tactics in Russia, and she made it clear that it's impossible to understand the war in Ukraine today without understanding domestic politics in Russia ever since the breakup of the Soviet Union. That's right, Will. Uh, you'll remember that back in our second season, Masha Gessen of The New Yorker told us about fleeing from Russia in 2013 after having been an outspoken critic of President Putin. The government was threatening to take my adopted son out of the family, and by implication also threatening the biological kids because they were being raised by a lesbian couple. And like many, many other people, I made the choice to leave the country. The year before, Gessen had published a book about Putin. It was called The Man Without a Face, and it chronicled Putin's emergence from the shadows and his rise to power with the help of Russian oligarchs. We asked Gessen how Putin managed to stay in power, especially given the persistent social protest movements that keep doggedly emerging in Russia. Um, Putin has been terrified of mass protest ever since he came to power and really protest in general. And he's been quite open about it. He's sort of offered up his recollections of uh, the protests in East Germany when he was stationed there as a KGB agent and just has conveyed incredible fear at even those memories. And he has reacted to protest up until recently in a way that was almost disproportionate to protest, even though Russians have now for more than a decade lacked any levers that would have allowed protest to turn into actual change. We haven't had a parliament that's capable of independent action. We haven't had a judiciary that is independent to any extent at all. So Putin's fear of protest has actually been kind of irrational. And I think something very significant has happened and, and very tragic has happened in the last nine, 10 months, which is that Putin has observed the crackdown in Belarus, where we have seen truly mass protests, right? On a scale that Russia has never even approached, where every little village, every every small town, every planned apartment block in the city of Minsk, people have been protesting consistently for months and months and months on end. And the regime has responded by cracking down, by jailing people, by torturing people, by killing several people. But most of all, it has responded by refusing to budge. And I think Putin has looked at that and thought, oh, that was an option all along. 
I can just refuse to budge and I can just crack down brutally. And I think that's why we've seen a real escalation in Russia where um, they've been very blatantly just destroying uh, Navalny's organization, which poses the greatest risk that Putin's regime has ever seen, right? Because Navalny has figured out ways to undermine all the pillars of the, of the, of the Putin regime. But Putin is still in power and Putin can pull a Lukashenko and just refuse to budge. And that's what he's doing. So Putin, like almost every dictator we've seen, relies on violence, threats of violence, fear, and loyalty. But he also seems to be a specialist in knowledge politics. And in your book, The Future is History, you write that the Soviet Union throughout its time waged a war on knowledge and in particular a war on the social sciences on history on philosophy and I, you know of course as you've explained in your book two generations or more of russians lost the depth that they needed to understand their own place in time their ability to evaluate their political circumstances and i'm wondering if you see anything similar happening during the last two decades in russia in the putin era do russians today have the freedom the curiosity the skill, the perspective to critically evaluate their own politics now? Uh, that's a great question. And unfortunately, I think the answer is no. And, you know, I, um, I feel that really strongly when I travel around the, the former Soviet bloc. I mean, it's been more than a generation, right? There have been lots and lots of young people are not so young people who've been educated in the, in the post-Soviet moment. And you can really tell just how, how much Russia is lagging behind, right? And I want to be clear on what I mean by that. I don't, you know, there's a, a Russian sociologist who got her PhD in the States and went back to teach in Russia quite a while ago, probably almost 20 years ago now. Um, and she wrote down some of her first impressions after returning, including an academic discussion that she witnessed. And she said, it was a debate between two very intelligent, very educated people. Is just one of them had been educated in the 20th century and the other in the 19th century. And that's kind of what I mean, right? I mean, Russia has, to a significant extent, missed out on the benefits of contemporary theory in every area of social sciences. And we often forget to uh, just to what extent that theory drives our current conversation anywhere you know in 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 the world that we think of as democratic, whatever that might mean. And Russia is not there, right? So we would have to. It's not necessarily a terrible thing that Russia would have to invent democracy all over again if there were a change in power. But I think that a loss of sort of intellectual language, a loss of intellectual skill is, is something that will set us back even more after Putinism than it did after the Soviet Union. Masha Gessen is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine and the author of 11 books, including The Man Without a Face, Surviving Autocracy, and The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. We're going to come back to Ukraine now and hear more about the recent struggles to protect democracy in that country. Unlike Russia, Ukraine's social movements in the 21st century have proved fruitful, beginning with dramatic events in 2004. Day and night in the bitter cold, hundreds of thousands of reform-minded Ukrainians have chanted their candidate's name. Lushenko! 
angry that the West-friendly Viktor Yushchenko had been robbed of the presidency. That November, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in a civil resistance movement that became known as the Orange Revolution. But tonight they cheered with more hope. In a dramatic move, Ukraine's Supreme Court threw out the official election results, which had declared the Kremlin-backed Prime Minister, Viktor Yanukovych, the winner. The Ukrainian national election had just ended in chaos. There had been widespread evidence of corruption and fraud, but these protests led to a brand new election, and that election changed the course of Ukraine's political history. It sets the stage for a potential Cold War-style competition over Ukraine. At the doorstep of Europe, Ukraine has long been at the center of power struggles among its neighbors. Russia, Germany, Poland, Austria, and Hungary, they've all played a role in shaping and arguing over the fate of Ukraine, as Harvard historian Serhii Ploki told us in an interview last year. But what I wanted to say also that Ukraine is not just a place where the great powers of the world meet and can't agree. Uh, this is also a nation in its own right, the nation that tried uh, to declare independence, to achieve independence five times in the 20th century. Ukraine, Serhii said, became a nation with an agency all its own. And 10 years after the Orange Revolution, Yanukovych was ousted from power for the second and final time, forcing him to escape into exile in Russia. Ukraine emerged as a democratic country for a number of reasons. And one of those was this really very rich and very diverse history of the region where you have parts of Ukraine that were for decades and centuries uh, within the borders of Austria-Hungary or Poland or the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Empire. And they come with their own sense and understanding of national identity and they come with their own political traditions. For example, the Western part of Ukraine was more involved in the experience with uh, electoral democracy in Austria-Hungary or in Poland than, for example, Central East eastern parts of Ukraine. And all of these regions, they have to find common language. And uh, Ukrainians realized that very early on, in 1993, we have in Russia the bombing of the Russian parliament, rewriting of the Russian constitution, creating a constitution that Vladimir Putin now certainly benefits from. Uh, in Ukraine, there is a, also a crisis, but there are elections, there is no shooting, and there is a constitution that gives a lot of power to the parliament. And uh, in 2004, there was a attempt actually to reverse this democratic course of the development of Ukraine, to steal the elections, to impose elements of authoritarian regime, and the Ukrainians said no. Well, so that was certainly an inspiring moment for many of us who were able to watch it from afar. Uh, let's hop forward to November 2013, which from our perspective sort of felt and looked similar. At that moment, Ukraine blew up with a major protest movement that's generally referred to as the Maidan or Euro-Maidan revolution or demonstrations. Right? Then the government of the president at the moment, Viktor Yanukovych, had made a decision to postpone the signing of an agreement with the European Union that would have signaled closer ties with Europe. But of course, Yanukovych was very close to Moscow, very close to Putin. And these enormous protests erupted, right, and, and ultimately led to the ouster of Yanukovych. 
So that seemed to be a high point, but things haven't turned out so good since then. Could you tell us what else, what are we missing from this story? What's happened since? What has been the ultimate effect of the Maiden demonstrations of 2013? Uh, there are clear parallels between the events in 2004 and uh, then 2013, uh, but there are also differences. The uh, events of 2013 ended up in violence, the first violence uh, in Ukrainian history since it became independent. I remember with regard to the Orange Revolution of 2004, uh, some of my friends were saying, what is wrong with you Ukrainians? Uh, you can't have a protest that wouldn't look like a street party. Uh, and that certainly party, that peaceful process, that festival of, of freedom came to an end in 2013. The events had two layers. One layer got uh, this name uh, in the term used to define those events as Euro-Revolution or Euro-Maidan. That was about orientation toward Europe. Another layer got its name in the name Revolution of Dignity because Ukrainians showed in mass on the main street of Kyiv after the police beat up the students. And that, that was the red line for the majority of Ukrainians that they refused to stay at home. Will not allow any government to treat us and our children like they were treated. We will not allow the government to do what the government wants to do. You know, I just I want to pick up on that because I'm I'm struck by this tradition of mobilization in the face of, of violence, of police brutality, uh, of, uh, maybe of, of of authoritarian tendencies. Where does Ukraine get this sense of civil society and civil mobilization after having lived in the Soviet Union for so long uh, under terrible conditions? What is the the source of this ability to mobilize uh, against? authoritarian regimes. Well, uh, in my book, The Gates of Europe, I, I uh, write that Ukrainians are excellent and accomplished rebels and uh, lousy state builders. <laughs> so you, you, Ukraine historically lived under foreign rule and control for, for centuries. Uh, Ukraine is also the place that is known through the Cossacks, and Cossacks are known uh, through their rebellions and revolts against the empire. Ukraine produced the largest anarchist movement and of uh, Nestor Makhno, the, the biggest peasant army in the Russian empire during the revolution. So in terms of mobilization against the state, Ukraine never had any problem at all. So what we see now after 2013 and 2014 and this ongoing uh, military conflict and war going on in Donbass and war with Russia effectively, is that Ukrainians for the first time started to mobilize around their state. And this is a big, big change historically. But in terms of uh, standing up to their rights, uh, Ukrainian history is, is, is full of examples like that. I love that that notion of being great rebels, but lousy state builders. That's, right, that's right. kind of a romantic but appealing uh, national we've seen it characteristic. Right. You, you've mentioned the Russian story a little bit. Let me just uh, come to that. So following the, the Maidan uh, revolution, Russia invades Ukraine and Crimea and then eventually annexes Crimea. Serhii, why has the annexation of Crimea been allowed to stand, this defiant act? Why has there not been adequate international response? There was uh, very little international response, despite the fact that uh, in accordance with the Budapest Memorandum, 
after Ukraine gave up uh, its part of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, there were assurances given by Russia, United States, UK about the territorial integrity of Ukraine and sovereignty of Ukraine. And of course, all of that was violated. The lukewarm response that followed, in my opinion, is the indication that the world actually was not prepared at all. And uh, there was also another thinking in terms that the majority of the population in the Crimea were ethnic Russians. So it was almost like the West was looking at Germany's behavior in uh, Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenlands, that, okay, yes, it was done uh, in violation of all international rules, but maybe there is a bigger truth about that, given that the majority are ethnic Russians. And then the idea was that it was uh, an exception. It was one-time thing. This is not an indication of the trend in general. This is Russia gathering Russians and Russian citizens, and uh, Russia will not go further. And that certainly perception changed with Donbass, with Syria, and it turned out that this very, very indecisive response to the Crimea opened door for much more aggressive policy uh, of Russia, not only in Ukraine, but worldwide. Serhiy Ploki is a professor of history at Harvard University. He's the author of The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine. His most recent book is Chernobyl, The History of a Nuclear Catastrophe. He directs Harvard's Ukrainian Research Institute. You know, Will, uh, we have been paying attention to Ukraine and Russia since we started this podcast as both, a, you know, a symbol of a resilient democracy and a real multilateral threat to democracy. That's why we've been interviewing experts like Serhiy Ploki and Masha Gessen over the past few seasons. And right here at the, you know, at the beginning of March 2022, we just don't know how the world's going to turn. You know, if 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 we lose Ukraine from the list of democratic countries, that's a serious setback, don't you think? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, Siva, one of the things that strikes me as a historian is this sense of living in history. But it's also exhausting to live in history. I mean, the eruption now of a war in Europe. And Ukraine, we may think of as Eastern Europe, but honestly, it truly is the gates of Western Europe, the gates of Central Europe. War has come to all of us in Ukraine. War has come to all of us. There's no way to escape that hard reality. So we have passed through so many turning points, but this may be the one that electrifies the world. And I think that's because we all understand with an immediacy that we didn't have before that our own sense of humanity, of democracy, of freedom, of liberty is truly now in jeopardy, in danger of being destroyed, trampled, overturned forever. And that's the only way I can explain the extraordinary actions of European states, the American government, which are usually very reluctant to take firm action in conflicts such as is now going on in Ukraine. Yeah, you know, U Ukraine is not just a European country, not just the gateway to Europe, not just the breadbasket of Europe. 
It's also a post-colonial state, right? Let's remember that. Its experience is one of struggle to establish nationhood, citizenship, patriotism, to assert its people's right to govern themselves, and to assert itself on an international stage. And it's been a really frustrating history for Ukraine. I think that experience, the experience of having once been, recently been, colonized by an empire, means that the experience of the people of Ukraine appeals to people around the world, to other places that had been recently colonized. Siva, as we wrap up, I just want to say thank you for reaching out to Jane, bringing her voice into the show and sharing her experience with our listeners. Um, She must have been going through a very difficult time. It took a lot of guts for her to come on the show. Yeah, you know, Jane and I know each other through social media circles. We both study social media and its effect on democracy. So, you know, we've been conversing for some years on these abstract questions, but now it's personal. It's personal to her. It's personal to me, right? We all have a personal stake in making sure that people are going to be able to govern themselves and a personal stake in making sure that human rights are respected around the world. And uh, it was really moving talking to her. It was moving that she even wanted to give us the time. So, you know, I want to send my best wishes to Jane, to her family and to everyone in Ukraine. That's all we have this time on Democracy in Danger. Next week, we'll hear from author Jonathan Katz about America's own imperialist projects in the early 20th century. You have some people who are like, this was terrible. (laughs) Let's stop these wars. Let's stop killing people. Let's stop killing people for profit. And then you have other people who are, you know, essentially brutalized. Please stay in touch. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's at DIND Podcast. Share this episode on social media and visit our webpage, dindanger.org, for more on what's coming up and a rundown of all our shows. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengal with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Badianathan. Until next time. Mm-hmm.